Good morning, everyone. Let's uh, go to the Lord together in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word, and it's uh, your word we come here to study, to hear, to think about, to be uh, impressed by, to be moved by. Lord, I pray that you would use your word proclaimed today for your glory. I pray that your spirit would be moving in our midst, that we, each of us here, would be uh, walking in submission to you, that we would be listening to, uh, attentive for the voice of your spirit, that when your word speaks, we would find ourselves in submission to it and not uh, not over it. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be responsive to what we hear today. Help us to be obedient to the way you move. Lord, as we, uh, as we sang just a, a few minutes ago, we pray that you would show us Christ today. Show us Christ from your word. Lord, I pray that we would be showing Christ to one another in our relationships, in our fellowship, even as we get together and eat afterwards and celebrate and praise you. May we show Christ to one another. Pray that you would be lifted up during this time. We love you and we trust you in Jesus' name. Amen. As you are opening your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 4, that'll get us started where we want to be. First Timothy chapter 4, and we're pressing on through our book that we've been uh, studying for some time now, and uh, we're glad to get back into it this week also. Yeah, as I was reading the passage this week, I was reminded of a book that, that uh, the elders have been reading off and on for the last couple of years, actually, and various of us have been in discussion. It's a book called The Trellis and the Vine, and it's by Marshall and Payne. And um, basically, the premise of the book is that uh, it starts off by a description of this guy's backyard. He says in his backyard, he has this this one vine that is uh, growing like crazy. And it's it, it has spread everywhere and it's very fruitful and it's beautiful to look at. And and it's very it's a very healthy vine. But if you look at the trellis underneath it, the trellis is kind of mangled. Right. The thing that's supposed to be like holding it up is sort of twisted and, and it's popped out in various places. And he's tried to get in there and fix it and. And whatever, he can't really do that too much because the vine has taken over. And this healthy vine is just, is, uh, is kind of moving the trellis where the vine wants the trellis to be. And, uh, as opposed to, so that's, that's one of the trellises that he has in his backyard. And he says he has this other trellis that is just beautiful. And it's freshly painted and it's perfectly straight and it's been there, uh, who knows how long and it's just gorgeous to look at and nothing's pried apart, nothing's torn apart, everything is straight and where it should be, but there's no vine. And a trellis should have a vine. That's the purpose of the trellis is to serve the vine. It looks beautiful and everything, right? And you know, you can paint it the color you want and you could change the paint for the different seasons if you really wanted to. Right. It's a beautiful thing. You could decorate with it. But the purpose of a trellis is to serve a vine. Right. And so they use that illustration to talk about the church and talk about the importance of gospel ministry in the church. The importance of us sharing the gospel with one another, of us talking Bible with one another, that that is really what ministry is all about. It's it's not the structure necessarily. The structure is there to serve the, gro- serve the growth of the vine, and the vine is the church. The vine is the church. It's you and me as we grow in Christ. 
And so they are uh, making various points about the fact that sometimes we spend a lot of time focusing on the trellis because we really want to build a good trellis, want it to be well-painted and stuff, at the expense of vine growth. And so what they're trying to encourage us and what we encourage one another and challenge one another with when we think about that is are we thinking about the trellis? Are we thinking about the structure? Are we thinking more about uh, the programs, etc., than we are thinking about gospel ministry to one another? And so this is, a, this is a book that we've been challenging one another with, and our passage today deals very directly with this kind of topic. You know, that, that uh, subject of focusing on gospel ministry, uh, praise the Lord, has really become a, more and more of an issue uh, that people are talking about nowadays. Books are being written about it. There's a Bible study, a, a Sunday school class that Chris Ward is, is teaching uh, at 9 a.m. on uh, this book, The uh, Bookends of the Christian Life by Jerry Bridges. And it's talking about keeping our focus on the gospel, on gospel ministry. And so that's a big, it's something that the spirit is doing around the world, particularly in America and, and the Western world, as far as what we read uh, right now. It's, it's what he's doing. And it didn't start with Jerry Bridges and it didn't start with Marshall and Payne. Our book right here, First Timothy, is Paul writing to his friend and delegate Timothy to remind him to be about gospel ministry. And so that's where we're focusing on today. We're, we're going to start off in uh, chapter 4, and we're going to finish up this chapter here, verses 11 through 16. We'll get to those in a minute. He starts off by saying, command and teach these things, these things. And so I want us to make sure we're all on the same page about what, what in the world these things are. Okay, what are we talking about? So I think he's referring back to the teaching generally of the book to this point. So I kind of want to power through this a little bit quickly here. The, a, a summary of these things, okay? So it's, it's four things mainly that we're thinking about, right? First of all, as, as we look back uh, at, at the book here, he's saying that the gospel is meant for all people. It's not meant just for a, a single special class, privileged class of people. The gospel is meant for all people. It's to go broadly. It's to go everywhere. It's to go beyond Jews. It's to go beyond this people group. It's to go for everybody, right? The gospel is meant for all people. That's the first of the things he's referring to. The second of these things is that there should be order between the men and the women in church. There shouldn't be chaos and there shouldn't be immorality. These are the kind of things that were going on in the church in Ephesus, which is where Timothy is pastoring and Paul is writing his letter to make some corrections here. That's the kind of stuff that was going on there. And he says there should be order between men and women in the church. There shouldn't be chaos. There shouldn't be immorality. Number three, the church needs to have appropriate people in leadership. Appropriate people in leadership. Not like the church in Ephesus that had these, these, uh, these men in leadership who uh, had seared consciences Paul says they had sinful lifestyles and ulterior motives for what they were doing. They were, they were doing it to, for, for personal gain of one sort or another. So this is, this is one of the things that's being discussed there. That's the third one. The fourth one is, he says, Timothy, study and teach truth about Christ, the mystery of godliness, instead of wasting time with idle speculations and babble that only serve to produce quarrels and dissension. Be about the gospel, not about these other things that are distracting, that are ultimately destructive to ministry. So 
when he says these things, we're about to get into the passage, that's the stuff he's referring to. These are the things that were going on in Ephesus, and Paul wanted to correct, wanted Timothy to correct and change a little bit, right? The church in Ephesus had gone off the rails. Paul wants to pull him back on, right? And so as we look at chapter 4, we look at the passage we did two weeks ago, verses 6 through 10, just a reminder of what we talked about there. He said, he said uh, servant, train yourself for the purpose of godliness. Train yourself for godliness. How do we do that? First of all, reject junk teaching, right? I really wanted to talk about a lot of nutrition type stuff, and I, I held off on that to a little bit. First of all, reject junk teaching. Second of all, embrace the gospel. Embrace the Bible, thirdly. Embrace sound doctrine, fourthly. We said that the, a key aspect of training in godliness was number five in that list, that we understand and obey. And then sixthly, that we stick with it because it doesn't happen quickly. So this week's passage is going to reinforce more of the same, and I promise we really are going to get into verse 11 through 16 here in a minute. We're, he's going to continue on kind of the same vein, talking about godliness, talking about godliness. So I want us to have in our mind a clear definition of what godliness is, because I bet if we took a poll, there would be various different answers from different people, right? And if I asked some of you twice, I'd probably get two different answers about what godliness means, right? There's a little bit of confusion about what it means. One, one commentator wrote it this way. He said, godliness means both the content of the truth and its visible expression in correct behavior. That's, that's relatively succinct, right? It's the content of the truth and its visible expression in someone's behavior, someone behaving in accordance with that teaching, right? In accordance with the truth, that's godliness. In other words, godliness starts with true biblical teaching about Christ, who he is, what he's done, and then it moves into lifestyle or behavior that is consistent with that teaching. Godliness is true teaching and a life that's consistent with that teaching. Can we settle on that one? That's what godliness is. True teaching and a consistent life. Okay? So that's what godliness is. With all that in mind, we really do now come to 1 Timothy 4.11. Command and teach these things that I just enumerated. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on your teaching, on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. May God bless the reading of his word. We start off here, verse 11, by looking at instruction in godliness. Instruction in godliness. Now, instruction can mean a couple of different things, right? Instruction can mean teaching of content, it can also be instructing you how to behave, right? So it's a different kind of teaching a little bit. And he's, he's going to start here with this, the second kind, commanding obedience. He's talking about commanding obedience. He says, command and teach these things. Command and teach these things. Now, we talked about this extensively in Sunday school this morning, the fact that there are commands in Scripture, right? Sometimes some of us 
love to read those commands. We talked about this, that we might be reading through the book of Ephesians and it's a little bit ho-hum chapters one, two, three, because it's talking about truth and content, right? Get to chapter four and now all of a sudden the commands start. Now this is when the book really gets good, right? Some of us like it that way. Some of us are the other way. We love chapters one, two, and three because it's stuff we can think about and it's, and it's this truth stuff and, and we can really dig into that, right? And then we get to chapter four and, and we kind of whip through chapter four and five and six because that's just the application stuff, right? We, we, we all have a little bit different bent in that way. I know you're thinking, I'm the one who loves all six chapters the same, right? You're thinking about yourself that way. Maybe you are, but I would be maybe a little surprised here. We tend to go one way or the other in our own thinking in that regard. He starts off by saying, command and teach these things. Command and teach these things. I have a question for you to think about in your own mind. Many of you are parents. Almost everybody has taught someone something, right? Maybe we've discipled someone else. Maybe we uh, teach other people things at work or whatever. When do you command and when do you teach? When do you command and when do you teach? Well, I was thinking about this. I think we give commands when the, the issue at hand is the person's will. Do they or do they not want to do this thing? I could explain something to someone and explain all the background, explain what's going on so that they understand the details, they know what's going on, and they still just don't want to obey. At that point, my teaching is done. The issue at hand is their will. They just don't want to do it, right? This is the way it is often with parenting. We kind of have to figure out, is this something, an instruction issue, or is this an instruction issue, right? We command when the issue at stake is the will. Just need to do it. Just do it, right? We already understand the stuff behind it. So command obedience when what stands in the way of obedience is the will. Sometimes we don't need to understand it better. We just need to do it, all right? So he says command and teach these things. So secondly here, teach doctrine. There are things we need to obey in Scripture, and we need to tell people to do those things. We personally need to do those things. We also need to teach and be taught and study and understand doctrine. What does the Bible teach us about who God is, for example? The Bible teaches us a lot about who God is, and we can dig in and learn a ton, right? And so we, in our own discipleship, as we are growing in godliness, we need to think about doctrine. We need to study and learn doctrine. We need to teach others doctrine. And with all the stuff that was going on in Ephesus at the time, and Timothy's the pastor there, Paul says, you know what? There are some things you just need to give commands about, and they need to follow the commands. And there are other things you need to teach. You need to help them understand the truth of what's going on here. There are times when you command. There are times when you teach. Studying and meditating on doctrine, I think this is not widely uh, understood maybe in, uh, in broader Christianity. Studying and meditating on doctrine teaches us what is really real, and it motivates us to respond accordingly because we come to understand what is really real. We need to be taught, and we need to be teaching others correct beliefs and doctrine and teaching. So he's instruction in godliness. Sometimes we need to command stuff. Sometimes we need to be commanded stuff. And sometimes we need to teach. Sometimes we need to be taught, right? And this is what Paul is telling Timothy. Secondly here, he starts 
going into a lifestyle of godliness. Now, do you remember the definition? I'm sure you wrote it down. I'm certain you wrote down what the definition of godliness there was. And what definition did I give there at the end? It's true teaching and a life that's consistent with that teaching, right? True teaching and a consistent life, okay? We're going to focus on the second aspect here, which is life, a lifestyle of godliness, okay? Now, this is interesting. Don't disregard youth. Now, I can say that with a clear conscience because I'm 40 now, and biblically speaking, I'm not a youth anymore. So I can say that easily. I still feel like a youth, and I may still act like a youth and talk like a youth and all that, but technically I'm not. But Timothy was a young guy. He was probably just a few years younger than me. And in that world, he was still considered a youth. You can consider someone even pushing 40 to be, to be a youth, right? So it could really be anyone from about that age on down. And so Timothy is that kind of guy. He's a, he's a young guy. I mean, he's not a kid. He's not 17 trying to pastor this church, right? He's a, he's a grown man, but in that day and age, he would be considered a youth. And uh, I thought this, this, the way this is put up, uh, the way it's written in the Greek is fascinating to me because it says, let no one despise you for your youth. So in English, it's a little bit difficult to understand quite what's going on there. It sounds like he's saying to Timothy, don't let them do that to you. You need to stop them from doing that. Don't let them do that, right? That's, that's a little bit of what it sounds. It sounds like it's a command to Timothy, but it's not. In the Greek, it's a third-person command, a third-person imperative, which means it's a command spoken to Timothy, but it's intended for them, right? It's a command to them. So basically, he's telling them, stop disregarding his youth, but he writes it in a letter to Timothy, so it's a, it's a little odd in English. It's a little hard to understand because we don't really communicate that way. But that was normal for them. They did that. It was it was a pretty pretty normal thing. So this command is actually for the people. Don't disregard his youth. Don't disregard don't disregard his message just because he doesn't you know have a full beard or whatever. Don't disregard youth. Right. That's the command for them. So I was thinking about that for our day and age. In Russia, this would make a lot of sense because. In Russia, if you don't have gray hair, you know, what you say is kind of questionable. I've got a little bit of gray hair, a little bit, but, you know, it took me a long time to get it. And so it, it, you're more respected if you're older. That's typically the way it goes. And so, well, I look young, I act young, I sound young, all this kind of stuff. And so what I say doesn't necessarily carry a whole lot of weight in Russia, right? But we're in the States. Things are a little bit different. And so I thought, man, what? how does this apply for us? The more I thought about it, the more I think what's really going on here is that there are times when we look for a pretense to ignore what someone is saying to us, particularly if they're saying something uncomfortable to us, right? If you're a little bit of a chauvinist, you know, you know, what, what, what's she doing? What's she doing telling me I can't do such and such? Or what, you know, she's really kind of out of place here, right? She, you're just looking for a pretense to disregard what this wise woman in the, in the Lord said to you, right? Or maybe when it's just a teacher or maybe... Whatever, you're looking for a pretense to ignore what this person says. The issue is really our own pride, right? Am I willing to submit to the authority that God has put over my life? Or am I going to nitpick it, take it apart to where now, eh, I don't have to listen to that guy because of such and such reason, right? Do we do that? I think we do that. I can see it. I can see it in my own heart. And I'm certain that I'm not alone in this, right? So don't. Disregard youth is the specific example at hand, but really it's don't disregard authority. 
Don't look for some excuse or some pretense to disregard authority. Right? Speeding, for example. I remember having an argument with a guy in Chicago. And uh, Steph and I don't like to speed. We don't. We normally drive the speed limit. That's just the way it is. And so it takes a certain amount of time to get long distances, and we just deal with it. We, we, it's a simple one to obey, right? Well, not for everybody, apparently. I remember this guy actually arguing with me that it was actually better to speed. It was safer to speed on the, on the freeway, on the expressway in Chicago. It's better to speed. It's safer. And so that was his way of making an argument so that he could disregard the authority and do really what he wanted to do, right? That's a little bit of a silly example. It's not safer to speed on the expressway in Chicago. I'll tell you that. But we do that. We do that. We want to find a pretense to disregard what authority is saying to us, particularly if it's something that's uncomfortable in our lives. He says, don't do that. Don't disregard youth. And here he turns to Timothy, right? Turns to Timothy. And listen to what he says to Timothy, this young guy, right, who is who is in danger of being disregarded for his youth or whatever, right? He says, let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. He says, Timothy, people are looking for a reason not to listen to you. Don't give it to them. They want to disregard you because you're young. Set them an example. Set them an example in the way you talk, in the way you behave, in all aspects of the Christian life, you be the example to them. Give them no reason to disregard you. They may still disregard you, but give them no reason. Set them an example in speech and in conduct that you say things that are true and right and good, and then your lifestyle backs it up. Set them an example in love and in faith and in purity. Broadly speaking, all aspects of the Christian life, you be an example to them. Give them no cause to slander you. Set an example. These things are all markers of spiritual maturity. So, Timothy, they want to call you young. Demonstrate to them again and again, day in and day out, when it's good and when it's hard, that you're actually spiritually mature. Give them no cause to disregard you. They may ignore you, but give them no cause. Godliness is a lifestyle. That's what we're talking about, the lifestyle of godliness. It shows itself in our behavior with our friends, with what we do on a Saturday night, on a Friday night, on a Monday morning. It shows itself in our behavior with our enemies when someone comes against us, when someone stands up against us and says rude things or whatever. It shows itself when people are watching us and we're on stage and everyone's looking at you and Monty's trying to do the memory verse, right? Godliness shows itself there. And it shows itself when you're alone and no one can see you, but God alone. Godliness shows itself there. Godliness is a lifestyle. So he's talking about here, the lifestyle of godliness. And what's our definition? What's our definition of godliness? We said that it is true teaching and a consistent lifestyle, right? So he's talked about lifestyle. Now he's going to talk about teaching, teaching for godliness verses 13 and 14. Let's read that together. It says, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Be devoted, Timothy, to Bible ministry. And of course, not all of us in here are involved in Bible ministry. Not all of us are actively involved in ministry. I... 
I would like to see every one of us in one way or another involved in Bible ministry, whether sharing the gospel with someone, doing a Bible study with someone, maybe you're discipling someone, parenting your children in a godly fashion is Bible gospel ministry. We all need to be involved in some sort of gospel ministry. And when Paul writes to Timothy, he tells him, be devoted to Bible ministry, Bible ministry, biblical ministry, the public reading of scripture, right? We don't do a ton of that. I'm reading a couple of verses at a time. We are kind of following along, but it's kind of part of the exhortation and teaching part, right? Kind of all tied together. There would be great benefit in reading scripture together. Just taken off and reading. Like, for example, instead of me going through what these things were, I could have read you the first four and a half chapters of the book. That would have been very beneficial for all of us. It's the word of God that's living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, right? It's the word of God. Read it. Read it. And so, Christian, whether in your ministry or in your own life, be about Bible ministry. Be devoted to the Bible, to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, which means I lay it out before you and then I urge you to respond to it. Respond to it. Respond to it. Not just uh, here's point one and point two and point three. You got it all. Uh, Okay, we're good. See ya. But respond to it. Exhortation means here's God's standard. Let's let's live our lives in light of it. Let's let's respond to what God says in his word and teaching. Explain, teach. What does it mean? What's here? How does it all fit together? I have a question. How does that work with this? Oh, that's a difficult one. Let's talk about that. Teaching, understanding what's there. One thing, well, there are many, many things I love about God's word. One of those things is that you can never ask it too hard a question. Ask it the hardest question you will. Put extreme pressure onto God's word. See if it'll hold up. It'll hold up. So ask harder questions. Don't back off and ask wimpy questions. Ask harder questions. It will hold up. Teach God's word. Be devoted to Bible ministry. This word here, devoted. I, I mentioned this when I, I preached some time ago. We talked about uh, them being addicted or going after these, uh, these, this little teaching and this curious little stuff that they like to talk about, being addicted to it. Same word. This is the only use of the word devoted, which there is translated addicted in some versions. This is the only good use of the word devoted in all the pastoral epistles. Don't be devoted to that. Don't be devoted to that. Don't be devoted, committed, addicted, giving yourself to these other things. The only thing that you should be devoted to and addicted to, the only thing you should be going after is God's word. Going after God's word, which of course reveals to us who he is. Be devoted to God's word. And then he says here, do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Do not neglect the gift you have. From the context, it's clear that teaching is that gift. It doesn't say ex ex uh, explicitly right here what that gift is. But as I searched through 1 Timothy, I found like 17 literally references to teaching. Doctrine, teaching, teach this, they're teaching this. Teaching is the issue. And for Timothy, the gift that he was given was teaching. He says, don't neglect that gift. Don't neglect that gift. 
So I don't know what your gift is. I don't know how God's gifted you. If, if you look at 1 Corinthians 12, you see various kinds of gifts, and there are other lists of gifts in the New Testament, and those may not even be all the gifts, gifts that there are from the Holy Spirit. But God has gifted each of us in different ways to perform different functions. And in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 7, 1 Corinthians 12, 7, Paul says specifically there that the gifts that were given to everyone, to each individual member, were given for the common good of the body. Just like in your body, right? Everything that we have is for the common good of the body. Okay, what about your pinky? Well, I mean, you've got, you've got nine other fingers. You could get rid of that bad boy, right? It wouldn't be a big deal. If you get rid of your pinky, you're going to have all kinds of problems, right? If you, if you try and climb a rope, the way your hand is built, your pinky like locks it in and then the rest of the fingers hold on top of it. It's like, it's like a wedge. Take that off and now you just have to use grip strength. You can't use your pinky to lock in. God knew what he was doing when he gave his pinkies. That shouldn't be a surprise to anybody, right? Well, some of you are pinkies in the body, right? And you're thinking, ah, they don't need my gift. Look, Parkside's a big place. They got, you know, they got all these people and this guy's teaching that and doing this. And we got other, all this kind of stuff. We need pinkies. God gave pinkies to the body so that we would use them. Not just to hold out when you're drinking tea, okay? They have other uses. <laughs> he says, don't neglect your gift. Why? That gift was given to you, not just for you. It was given to you for us. And if you're neglecting that gift, if you're withholding it, we're suffering. We're suffering. That's the way God has designed the body. That's the way the body has been put together. Imagine just out of the blue that you had your thyroid removed. Just, you know, I don't, I don't know where I came up with that. Out of the blue. Imagine you had your thyroid removed. You've got to do something to compensate for that. It does something. It's designed for something in your body. I, I don't know what that is. I imagine it does something, right? You've got to compensate, right? Some sort of medication to, to, to compensate for that. Because you need it. And we need you. We need the pinkies. Don't neglect your gift. The body suffers when you neglect your gift. All right, enough on that. I could keep going, really want to. All right, that was use your gifting. It's really tempting to keep going. I could, I, could, I could do a lot of exhortation right there, okay? I could really do a lot of exhortation. Fourthly, verses 15 and 16. Growth and fruit of godliness. This is where it gets very practical. You're going to love this list, by the way. All right, some of you like lists. I'm not one of those, but see, look at that. You got a list of four things there. Good stuff, right? All right, verses 14 to 15. Excuse me, 15 to 16. He says, practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Growth and fruit of godliness. Now, we talked about growing, training yourself for godliness a couple of weeks ago when we looked at the preceding paragraph. Here he gets, he gets a little bit more in detail. He, he, he gives us a better list, right? He says, first of all, practice. Practice these things. Practice these things. Keep doing them. Keep doing them. Cultivate that ability. Cultivate that thing. Teach this and focus on it and keep working at it and get better at it and practice. Practice. It takes time. 
doesn't happen quickly. Cultivate, take pains with, be diligent in it, in working on and developing your doctrine and then consistent living with your faith, your godliness. Second of all, devotion. Immerse yourself in them. Be devoted to these things. The Greek says, be in them. Be in them. Immerse yourself. Be devoted to. Throw yourself into. Be absorbed in. Give yourself entirely to these things. To pursuing godliness in your life. True doctrine, teaching, reflected in a consistent lifestyle. Pursue these things. Go after these. Be in them. Be developing these things. Make that your mission. Always be involved. Plug into that. And I love the goal that he says here. So that all may see your progress. Of course, he's not saying, Timothy, I want you to really make a show of yourself so that everyone can look and see how awesome you are. Right? That's not what he's saying. But he did just say, hey, they're going to try and disregard you because you're young. Set an example for them. Stick with it, practice it, be in it so that they can look and see your progress so that they can see you grow. They can look and see in your life that these things are consistent, that the doctrine that you believe is being lived out in your life. Your life becomes more and more consistent with the doctrine you believe. So that's devotion. And then he says, keeping watch, keep close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Keep a close watch. Be on your guard. Be looking around in your life. Be examining. Right? This isn't the only thing he commands, but we need to keep an, an eye on what we believe, what we're teaching, and on our lifestyle. Right? What's godliness again? It's true teaching being lived out in a consistent life. Keep your eye Keep your eye fixed. Keep a close watch and pay attention. And finally, persistence. Persistence. Persist in this. Persist in this. Stick with it. Stick with it. Growth and godliness doesn't happen quickly. Really, almost no growth, real growth, happens quickly. It's usually a slow process. Particularly if it's going to be good and solid and lasting, it's probably going to be a slow process. And it's the same thing. Stick with it. Stick with it. There is no magic quick fix, right, that's going to take you there. You just have to stick with it. I used to joke with people that before my uh, two girls became teenagers, I said I was working on some formula to try and go from 12 to 20 and just skip right over the whole teenage thing. And maybe I could get that to work and patent that and, you know, skip some of the stuff, but it didn't work out, you know, and so now I have a 15-year-old and a 13-year-old. And life's great. You, you can't go from 20, 12 to 20. That's not the way it works. And you can't go in the, in the Christian life from zero to 60. You have to go persistently in growth, right? You have to grow persistently. Stick with it. Stick with it. Persist. Keep at it over the long haul. And then he says here that there's a goal connected. Just like there was a goal before, there's a goal now. Before the goal was that other people would see, would look at your life and see that it's consistent, Right? Here he says, persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Now, some of you just had flags go off, right? Wait a minute. You can't save anybody. Timothy, you can't save anybody. You can't save yourself and you can't save someone else, right? True. And that's not what Paul means. God, of course, 
alone is the author of salvation. He accomplishes salvation and man gets no glory for it. However, God uses the declaration of the gospel and his word to bring about salvation in people. Think about Romans 1.16, right? The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. So when we proclaim the gospel to someone, we therefore, in some sense, as an instrument, are involved in their getting saved. Or Paul will say in, in uh, 1 Corinthians 9.22, right? I do all things so that I may by all means save some. Wait, Paul, you said you're going to save some? Yeah. He doesn't mean he's the cause of their salvation. He means he wants to be involved in the process as an instrument being used by God to proclaim the gospel in a consistent way so that the person will be saved. That's what he means when he says to save some. That's what he says here. It's the same, it's the same kind of language. This is the goal. This is where he's headed. When Paul is speaking with Timothy, when he's writing to him and he's telling him, look, the church in Ephesus is screwed up in all these kind of ways, so correct it with these steps. The goal, the end goal is right here. That you may save yourself and your hearers. That by consistently proclaiming God's word by declaring the gospel clearly and consistently and regularly by reading scripture, by living a life that is consistent with that gospel. You are more likely to see people get saved and continue to follow after Christ, right? Woody and I could stand up here and decide that we're going to, we're going to preach the gospel. Um, I don't know, one Sunday and eight, right? And we declare the gospel very clearly. And then the other seven, we do whatever we wanted. Some people might get saved. Some people might get saved. Would it be a ton? I doubt it. I highly doubt it. Would, would we be more faithful stewards if we regularly proclaim the gospel week in, week out? And if we live lives that's consistent with the gospel, that are consistent with the gospel, would that be a better witness? Would there be better results? Would that be a better testimony with the world? Of course it would. Of course it would. It's in that way that you save yourself and your hearers. You would have a much more effective and lasting ministry. Well, not many of you are pastors, right? But you've been called to be ministers. You've been called to share the gospel. You've been called, at at the very least, to raise your children in the faith, to train them up in the way they should go to teach them day in and day out God's word. You've been called to that. We've all been called to gospel ministry in some, in some fashion. And so we need to grow in these ways. We need to practice these things. It involves what we're teaching, what we're feeding ourselves, what we're allowing to be fed in church and a lifestyle that is consistent with these things. And we need to persist in that. We need to be devoted, give ourselves, be involved, be committed to. We need to be keeping watch on ourselves and on our teaching, and we need to persist and persist and persist. And in this fashion, that's when we will see the most consistent ministry, the most consistent response to the gospel. We'll see godliness. And that's the goal. I love how Paul started the book here. Flip back if you would. 
because we're pretty heavy into the imperatives part here. We talked in Sunday school about indicatives and imperatives, right? An indicative is a statement of what's true, and an imperative is a command, right, instruction. We're pretty heavily into the, into the uh, imperative section. We had ten imperatives, I think, in, in this passage, right? Ten. Ten commands, right? So in Scripture, you will always see the indicative given, whether it's explicitly given or it's implicitly given, for, that sets the foundation and tells us why the imperative is important. And it's the same thing here. I want you to flip to chapter 1 of 1 Timothy. And this is, this is Paul diving into the meat of this book, right? This is him sharing his own testimony, right? He starts in verse 12 and he says this, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. He was a no, uh, a no good Nick, right? But I received mercy because I'd acted ign- ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost, but I received mercy. Why, Paul? For what purpose? For this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And this is how he starts the book, talking about the gospel. He holds himself up, not because he's a great guy, but because he's an example of God saving a guy who was not a great guy, a blasphemer, a persecutor, a violent opponent of the church. And God saved him and uses him. This is the indicative. This is the what is true that brings the rest of this about. In light of the fact that we are sinners saved by the grace of God, not by our own accomplishment, not by our own polishing ourselves up or anything like that. It is God saving sinners. And that's what we're here for. Therefore, that means some things. It means let's live lives that are consistent with that. Let's teach that. Let's talk about that. And let's have our behavior come in line with that individually and as a church that we would display true biblical godliness, which is that salvation that Paul held up and said, this is incredible. God saving me a sinner, the worst sinner that we take that and we live it out in a life that's consistent with that. That's godliness. So we have that option of course this week we have that ahead of us we have a ton of ways that i can't even think of we can apply that we can take that into our daily life living this way the story of this grace of god is the core of christian teaching and it's the core motivator for christian conduct it flows out of what christ has done for us in the gospel Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for the gospel. Thank you for the fact that you saved me a wretch. 
in order to show your glory and put it on display in order to show your mercy to people around me in order that people might see that you are a gracious and loving and forgiving God. And each of those in this room who know you have been saved for that same purpose to put on display the glory of God, the mercy of God, the love of God in our lives. Lord, I pray that you would do that more and more. I pray that your glory would be on display. I pray that we would live lives not so that we could be good, not so that we could uh, climb or achieve or be better or whatever, but so that we would live lives that are consistent with the fact that you have saved us and called us to be your own children. Help us to do that, Lord. May we show you forth brightly in this community around us, in our lives this week, in all the relationships that we have. Help us to do that, Lord. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. All right, you're dismissed, and I will see you on the other side.